Section eight of Swanhilde and Other Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by phone. Swanhilde and Other Fairy Tales by Wilhelm Hauff. Translated by Carolyn Norris Horwitz. Section eight. The Story of the False Prince. There was once in Alexandria a tailor's apprentice named Labakan, who was learning his trade under one of the masters of the craft. It could not be said of Labakan that he was unskilled with his needle. As a rule, he could do fine work. Neither could it justly be said that he was lazy, and yet he was altogether different from his companions. There were times at which he would sit sewing for hours without the slightest intermission, turning out finer work than could any of his companions. But at other times, and alas, these times occurred more frequently, he sat motionless, as if in the deepest meditation, his eyes staring straight before him, but fixed on no particular object. At such times he had in his face, and indeed in his whole bearing, something so proud and forbidding that his companions and his master never remarked upon it in his presence more than to say to one another labakan has on his proud fit again on holidays when other people were going quietly home after the public service labakan would stride from the mosque dressed in handsome robes which he had with great trouble made for himself with grave and haughty mien he would walk through the principal squares and streets of the city if any of his companions saluted him with good day labakan he would give a slight wave of his hand or perhaps a short nod of recognition when his master at such times would say to him in ridicule i declare labakan a prince has been lost in you he would brighten up and answer quite complacently have you also noticed that or so i have long thought labakan had gone on in this way for some time but his master bore with his foolery because the lad was in the main a young man of good habits and a skilled workman one day when selim the brother of the sultan was visiting alexandria he sent to the master tailor an order for a court robe, which he wished to have made entirely by one person. The master tailor gave the job to Labakan, because he could turn out the finest work. In the evening of the day on which the robe was finished, the master and the other apprentices had left the shop to take a little exercise after their day's work. Labakan was filled with so sudden and irresistible a longing for riches and splendor, that to gratify this he returned to the workroom where Selim's court robe hung. He stood before the garment for some time, lost in thought. At last, dazzled by the glittering of the embroidery, or fascinated by the beautiful combination of colors, and the quality of the silk, he gave way to a temptation he could not resist. He threw the robe over his own shoulders. It fitted him as perfectly as if it had been made for him. Am I not as good a prince as any one? he asked himself as he paced up and down the room. Has not the master himself said to me often that I was born to be a prince? With the robe he put on also a kingly manner, 
Indeed, he could not help thinking that he was the son of a king. As such, he determined to leave a place where the people were so simple as not to discover beneath the cover of his humble trade his noble birth. He would travel through the world. The magnificent robe seemed sent to him by some good fairy. He could not refuse such a present. His mind was soon made up. Putting into a bundle all his small possessions, he left the tailor's shop and went joyfully out of the gate of Alexandria into the darkness of the night. Wherever he went, the new prince excited much wonder and surprise. His magnificent robe, his solemn manner and majestic bearing were not at all suited to the character of a foot-traveller. When asked why he did not ride, he would answer, For reasons of my own. But when he saw that this going about on foot only made himself a laughing-stock, he bought for a small sum an old horse just suited to his needs. Its steady pace, its gentleness, and lack of tricks never brought him into danger. For although he assumed the air of a skilful rider, yet horsemanship was certainly not his forte. One day, as mounted upon Murva, so he had named his horse, he rode slowly along, a rider overtook him, and asked permission to ride in his company, because he said the way would seem so much shorter when one had someone to converse with instead of riding along in silence. The stranger was a handsome young man, merry and agreeable. He soon opened a conversation with Labakan, commencing with the usual questions as to whence he came and whither he was bound. It seemed that he, like the tailor apprentice, was travelling out into the world with no particular plans for the future. His name, he said, was Omar. He was the nephew of Elfi Bey, the unfortunate Bashaw of Cairo. Just now he was travelling to execute a commission, which his uncle, the Bashaw, had disclosed to him on his deathbed. Labakan was not so communicative as to his own affairs, and gave the young man to understand that he was of noble birth and was travelling for pleasure. The young men found pleasure in each other's society and rode on in company. On the second day of their journey, Labakan asked his companion Omar about the commission which he had mentioned. The answer filled him with astonishment. Omar confided to him that Elfi Bey, the Bashal of Cairo, had taken care of him from his earliest childhood. He had never known his own parents. When, however, Elfi Bey had been overthrown by his enemies, and after three unsuccessful battles had been carried from the field mortally wounded, the Bashal had disclosed to his young charge that he was not really his nephew. He was, so said Elfi Bey, the son of a mighty sultan, who, disturbed by the prophecies of the astrologers, had sent the child from his domains, with the oath that he would not see him again until his twenty-second birthday. Elfi Bey had not disclosed his father's name. He had bidden the young man seek out, on the fourth day of the coming month, Ramadan, on which day he would be twenty-two years of age, the celebrated statue of El Sawuja. This was four days' journey eastward from Alexandria. There Omar was to hand to the men whom he would find standing by the statue a dagger which the Bashal had given him, at the same time saying, Here am I whom ye seek. And if they answered, Praised be the Prophet who has preserved you, 
he was then to follow them, and they would conduct him to his father, the sultan. Labakan was surprised beyond measure at this communication. Thenceforward he looked upon Prince Omar with envious eyes. It angered him to think how partial fate was to this young man. It was not enough that he already passed for the nephew of a great bashaw, but he must now have conferred on him the greater title of the son of the sultan. On the other hand, he, Labakan, whom everybody said was born to be a prince, was subjected to scorn, was of obscure parentage, and must work his own way through life. Thus unfavorably he compared his fate with that of the prince. He could not but admit to himself that Omar was a princely-looking young fellow. His eyes were bright and sparkling, his form was faultless, his nose shapely. His deportment was polite and easy. In short, so far as one could judge from appearances, he was all that any king could desire in a son. But Labakan thought himself fully as fascinating in every way as was Omar. He did not doubt that were he Omar, he would be as heartily welcomed by the sultan as the true prince. These reflections occupied Labakan's mind all day. That night he fell asleep with them still on his mind. When early next morning he awoke and his eyes fell on Omar, who lay next to him, sleeping so peacefully, perhaps dreaming of his coming fortune, the thought suddenly struck Labakan to obtain, through cunning or violence, what unjust fate had denied to him. The dagger, the signal of the home-bound prince, was sticking in the sleeper's girdle. Labakan drew it out softly, with the intention of plunging it into its owner's breast. But the manliness and innocence of this young companion, who lay there sleeping so trustingly and peacefully, pleaded with his conscience against so foul a deed. He therefore contented himself with taking possession of the dagger, and the prince's fast horse, on which he galloped off. When Omar awoke and discovered that he had been robbed of all his hopes, his faithless companion had already many miles the advantage of him. It was on the first day of the sacred month, Ramadan, when Labakan committed the robbery on the poor prince Omar. He had yet four days in which to reach the statue of El Seruja. He knew that the hill on which the famous statue stood was not more than two days' journey from where he then was but he hastened on with all speed, in constant fear lest the prince should overtake him. At the end of the first day, Labakan came in sight of the statue of El Seruja. It stood on a little hill in the midst of a great plain, and could be seen for miles around. Labakan's heart beat fast at this sight. He had found time enough, during the day's solitary journey, to reflect on the mean trick he had practised. He was beginning to feel somewhat uneasy. But the thought that he was born to be a prince reassured him. His resolution was strengthened, and with never slackening speed he rode on, fixed in his purpose more confidently than ever. The region round about the statue of El Seruja was uninhabited. It was very rocky, and the false prince had some difficulty in riding over the uneven ground. At the end of the second day, however, he reached the appointed spot, and resting himself and horse under a palm tree, awaited with impatience his coming destiny.
toward the middle of the next day he saw approaching toward the statue a long procession of horses and camels the procession halted at the foot of the hill on which the statue stood magnificent tents were pitched which glittered in the sunlight like the caravan of some wealthy bashaw or sheikh Labakan conjectured that the great number of people he saw had journeyed thither in quest of him. He believed that they would gladly have welcomed him at once as their future master and lord, but he restrained his first impulse to come forward and announce himself as the prince. He knew that on the morrow the dream of his life would be gratified. The morning sun awakened the happy tailor to the most important era of his life this was the day that was to raise him from his humble sphere to be the son of a mighty prince but while bridling his horse preparatory to riding to the statue he thought with some compunction of the dishonest and unlawful means he had resorted to that he might obtain his end he thought of the pain and disappointment of the defrauded young prince when he found that all his hopes and expectations were frustrated but the die was cast he could not undo what he had already done and his selfishness whispered to him that he was stately enough in appearance to claim the mightiest king for his father encouraged by this idea he mounted his steed summoned all his strength and nerve to ride at full gallop and in less than a quarter of an hour he had reached the foot of the hill he dismounted from his horse fastened it to one of the bushes which grew around the hill drew out prince omar's dagger and ascended the hill at the base of the statue there stood six men around an old man of noble and kingly aspect a gorgeous garment of cloth of gold and turban richly ornamented with precious stones bespoke his wealth and rank labakan went straight up to the old man bowed low before him and said while offering the dagger behold here am i whom you seek now praised be the prophet who hath preserved you answered the king with tears of joy come to the arms of your old father my beloved son my omar labakan was much moved by this heartfelt greeting with feelings of mingled joy and shame he threw himself into the arms of the old sultan but he was only to enjoy the triumph of his new position undisturbed for a moment for as he raised himself from the arms of the old prince he saw a rider hastening over the plain toward the hill the rider and his horse presented a curious picture the horse which seemed either from stubbornness or fatigue unwilling to move advanced at a stumbling gait which was neither a pace nor a trot while the rider urged him on with whip and spurs at once labakan recognized in horse and rider his own sorry steed murva and the true prince omar but having once yielded to the dictates of falsehood and deceit he determined if it were possible to maintain his assumed right with the most persevering obstinacy the other men now espied the rider in the distance in a few moments in spite of the stumbling gait of the old horse the rider had reached the foot of the hill he flung himself from the horse and hastened to the group before the statue hold there he exclaimed behold whom you have before you 
stay and be not deceived by that basest of scoundrels i am omar no mortal shall dare to assume my name at this surprising turn of things great amazement appeared on the faces of the bystanders especially did the old sultan seem sadly perplexed as he gazed inquiringly first at one and then at the other of the two rivals but labakan with a feigned calmness which after a hard struggle he succeeded in assuming now spoke most mighty prince and father he said be not disturbed by yonder man if i be not mistaken he is a crack-brained tailor's apprentice from alexandria called labakan who rather deserves our pity than our anger these words infuriated the young prince to such a degree that he was almost beside himself with rage he would have rushed upon labakan and closed with him in mortal struggle had not certain of the bystanders thrown themselves between the two while others seized hold of omar and held him fast truly my dear son said the old sultan the poor man is sadly out of his mind then turning to his servants he said bind him and fasten him on one of our camels later we may perchance in some way be able to help the poor fellow the rage into which the young prince had fallen had subsided and he now cried out to the sultan his father while the tears forced themselves into his eyes my heart tells me that you are my father i charge you for the love of my mother to hear me out now the prophet defend us exclaimed the sultan already he has commenced again to rave as madly as any maniac and then leaning on labakan's arm he hastened down the hill there the party mounted upon fine steeds and rode off toward the sultan's palace the unfortunate prince with his hands bound was fastened securely on one of the camels while two horsemen rode on either side and kept a strict watch on his every movement the old prince was saoud the sultan of wekabitan for many years he had lived without children but at last to his great delight a son was born to him it was then that the astrologers whom he consulted as to the boy's fate prophesied that until his twenty-second birthday he was in great danger of being dispossessed of his rights by an enemy on account of this prophecy and for the sake of his boy's safety the sultan entrusted the lad to the care of a faithful and well-tried friend elfie bey who was to take care of him until the appointed time he himself had waited patiently for two and twenty years in fear and anxiety all this the sultan now told labakan his supposed son and showed himself more than satisfied with the young man's graceful form and with his dignified bearing as soon as they had come to the first village in the sultan's dominions they were greeted with shouts of joy for the news of the prince's arrival had spread like wildfire through all the towns and villages on all the streets through which they were to pass were arches of flowers and evergreens the windows and doors of the houses were decked with gorgeous tapestry and the people gave praise to the great prophet who had preserved for them so handsome a prince all this filled the proud heart of the tailor with delight very different were the feelings of poor prince omar 
who, silent and in despair, still followed in the procession, fast bound on the camel. Amid the general jubilee in which he should have been the chief actor, no one cared for him. Thousands upon thousands of voices shouted with cheers the name of Omar, but he to whom that name rightly belonged was hailed by none. Occasionally people asked one another who this could be that was so securely bound to the camel, and dreadful indeed did it sound to the ears of the prince, as his guards answered, Oh, he's only a crazy tailor. At last the procession reached the capital of the sultan's domains. Here all was in readiness to receive the prince with even greater splendor. The sultana, a venerable old lady, awaited his arrival, with all her attendants, in the magnificent throne room. The floor was covered with the softest carpet, the walls were hung with gorgeous tapestry, looped back with gold cords and tassels and fastened by silver clasps. It was quite dark when the procession reached the palace, and the rooms were hung with coloured lamps, their brilliancy turning the night into day. The clearest and most beautiful of the lamps were arranged at the furthest end of the room where the sultana sat on her throne. The throne was elevated on four steps. It was made of wrought gold, inlaid with amethysts. Four principal emirs of the kingdom held above the sultana's head a canopy of red silk, while the sheikh of Medina fanned her majesty with a fan of costly plumes. Thus the sultana awaited the return of her lord, with their dear son whom she had not seen since his infancy, but in special dreams she had seen him so distinctly that she would have recognized him among thousands. Now the noise of the approaching procession was heard. Trumpets and drums mingled their strains with the triumphant shouts of the multitude. The noise of the horses' hoofs rang loud in the palace court. Nearer and nearer came the sound of footsteps. The door of the palace was flung open, and leading his supposed son by the hand, the sultan entered the apartment. Hastening along the great corridor, he approached the sultana's throne. Behold, said he, I bring you him for whom you so long have pined. But the sultana interrupted him in the sentence, exclaiming vehemently, this is not my son. These are not the features which the prophet has shown me in my dreams. Just as the sultan was about to reprove her for her superstition, the door of the room was dashed open, and Prince Omar rushed in, closely pursued by his guards. Concentrating all his strength he had, with one mighty effort, resisted the united force of his captors, and now threw himself exhausted at the foot of the throne. Here I will die, let me be killed, cruel father, for I can bear this disgrace no longer. All were surprised at this interruption. The pursuing guards, hastening up, were about to seize and again bind him fast, when the sultana, who had heard and seen all in speechless amazement, sprang from her throne, exclaiming, Hold, touch him not, for this and no other is my son. This is he whom, though my eyes have not seen, my heart knows right well. The guards had involuntarily stepped back from Omar at this command, 
but the sultan who had worked himself into a passion ordered them to bind that madman i must now interfere he said here we do not pay attention to women's idle dreams but to certain and unerring signs i know this to be my son pointing to labakan for he has brought me the dagger the token agreed upon with my friend elfie bey of cairo he has stolen it cried omar he has treacherously used my thoughtless confidence but the sultan heeded not the voice of his true son he was accustomed in all things only to follow his own inclinations he therefore had the unfortunate omar confined in one of the palace cells he then went with labakan to his own apartment very wroth with his wife the sultana although until then he had lived with her in harmony and love for five-and-twenty years the sultana was much distressed at the sad ending of her joyful expectations she was perfectly certain that an impostor had usurped the sultan's heart for the very face and form of the unfortunate omar had in dreams often been shown to her as her son when her grief and disappointment had somewhat subsided the sultana began to think of some means by which she could convince her husband of his error this was certainly a hard thing to do the youth who pretended to be their son had brought the appointed token the dagger he had also learned so much of omar's early life from what the prince himself had told him that he could play his part well without being discovered from the men who had accompanied the sultan to the statue of el Sirujah, she learned all the particulars of the meeting she then held counsel with her most trusty attendants one means and another were proposed and opposed at last a shrewd old grecian woman named melexala spoke if i have heard aright noble lady the bearer of the dagger called him whom you hold to be your son by the name of labakan a crazy tailor yes that is so answered the sultana but what has that to do with the matter what if this impostor said the old woman had bestowed upon your son his own name if that be truly so then i have a capital plan to entrap the deceiver but this i must tell to you in private the sultana walked apart with the grecian slave and melexala whisperingly proposed her plan the sultana seemed so much pleased with the idea that she made ready at once to repair to the sultan's apartments the sultana was a wise woman who knew how to proceed with her royal husband she knew moreover how best to use her knowledge she therefore appeared to the sultan to have yielded to his judgment and to now be willing to own as her son the one whom he had chosen she only requested her husband to grant her one favour the sultan who was very sorry that any difference should have come between his wife and himself readily promised to grant her request i should like well said she to try them both by a test of their skilfulness others perhaps would have them race fence or fight with lances and swords but those are feats which any one can perform no i will give them something to do which requires ingenuity each one shall make a cloak and a pair of trousers and then we shall see which makes the better 
the sultan laughed and protested ah now you have indeed thought of something very clever what my son is to compete with your crazy tailor to see which can make the better cloak no that cannot be but the sultana reminded him that he had promised to grant her request the sultan was a man of his word and at last gave in at the same time swearing that if the mad tailor made his cloak ever so beautifully he would still never own him as his son the sultan went himself to his son to bid him humour the whim of his mother who wished to see how well he could make a cloak and now labakan laughed in his heart for joy for he thought if it only rests on that the sultana shall indeed soon gladly claim me as her son two rooms were prepared one for prince omar the other for the tailor there they were to prove their skill the sultan had a large piece of silk stuff shears needles and thread placed in each room the sultan was very curious to know what kind of cloak his son would be able to make the sultana was equally anxious as to the result of her plan two days was the time appointed in which the two rivals were to do their work on the third day the sultan sent for his wife and when she had joined him he sent to the two rooms for the two cloaks and their respective makers triumphantly labakan stepped in and displayed his cloak before the astonished eyes of the sultan see my father see my noble mother said he is not this a masterpiece of work i will lay a wager with the most skilled of tailors that he cannot turn out a finer cloak than this the sultana laughed and turned to omar and what have you made my son sadly the prince threw the silk and the shears to the ground i have been taught to ride a war-steed and to wield the sword my lance has hit its mark in fifty battles but the arts of the needle and thread are strangers to me for they were unworthy of the ward of elfi bey the bashaw of cairo oh omar my true son exclaimed the sultana ah that i could embrace you and claim you as my son pardon me my lord and husband said she turning to the sultan for the little trick that i have played upon you but do you not now see which is the prince and which the tailor truly the cloak which your son has made is magnificent and i should like well to know under what master he has learned the sultan sat in deep meditation contemplating with mistrust first his wife and then labakan the impostor was much disturbed he tried in vain to conceal his blushes of confusion he was angry with himself to think that he had been so stupid as to be caught in the sultana's trap this evidence is not sufficient said the sultan at last but allah be praised i know of a means whereby i can ascertain surely whether or not i have been deceived the sultan ordered his fastest horse to be brought mounted in haste and rode toward a forest which was not far from the city in this forest there lived a good fairy named adulzaid according to tradition she had often given good advice in the hour of necessity to sultan saud's ancestors it was to her that the sultan now hastened in the middle of the forest there was an open place surrounded by tall cedars 
in this place according to tradition the fairy lived seldom did any mortal pass this place for generations a certain terror of it had descended from father to son when the sultan had arrived at this opening in the forest he dismounted fastened his horse to a tree placed himself in the centre of the circle and said in a loud voice if it be true o Zaid, that you have given to my ancestors good advice in the hour of necessity then do not disregard the petition of their descendant advise me now in a matter in which man's wisdom falls short he had scarcely uttered the last word when one of the cedars opened and a veiled form in long white garments stepped forth i know why you have come to me sultan saud your wish is blameless therefore i will give you my help take these two walnuts they will open without breaking let each of the two who claim to be your son choose one i know that each will choose the one meant for him thus spoke the fairy and gave to her petitioner two nuts from off the fairy tree the nuts were of gold set with pearls upon the top of each one appeared an inscription set with diamonds during his homeward ride the sultan puzzled his brain to think what could be inside of the nuts neither one of which he could with all his strength force open the inscriptions also gave him no light on one was written truth and honour on the other good luck and riches the sultan studied these inscriptions and thought that it would be hard even for him to choose each in its way was best when he had again reached his palace he sent for the sultana and told her all that the fairy had said she was at once seized with an ardent hope and a strong conviction that the one whom she loved would choose the nut which would show his noble birth two tables were placed before the sultan's throne the sultan with his own hand laid a nut on each of the tables he then ascended his throne and ordered the slaves to throw open the doors of the saloon a glittering throng composed of all the bashaws and emirs in the kingdom poured through the open doors they saluted their master and seated themselves on costly cushions which had been placed in rows for their accommodation when they had all taken their places the sultan signed to one of his slaves and labakan was ushered in with a proud step the false prince marched through the saloon bowed low before the throne and said what does my princely father wish the sultan arose from his throne and answered my son there is still some doubt as to the right of your claims one of those nuts contains the proof of your noble birth choose which one you will take i doubt not it will be the right one labakan stepped up to the tables and considered for a long time which one he should select at last however he said most honoured father what could give greater happiness than the good luck to be your son what more enviable than the riches of your favour i choose the nut which has inscribed upon its shell good luck and riches we shall see later whether you have chosen the right one said the sultan meanwhile seat yourself upon the cushion by the bashaw of medina then at a sign to the slave omar was at once brought in his glance was sullen his countenance was sad 
and his whole manner excited the general sympathy of those present. He knelt before the throne and awaited the sultan's command. The sultan explained to Omar that he was to choose one of the nuts. He arose from his knees and stepped up to the tables. He read attentively the inscriptions, and then said, The last few days have taught me how uncertain is luck, and how perishable are riches, for they do take to themselves wings and fly away. But these days of trouble have also taught me that an imperishable blessing, namely truth, dwells in the heart of the brave, and that the shining star of honour fades not like riches. And though I should lose a crown by the choice, truth and honour shall be mine forever. He placed his hand upon the nut which he had chosen, but the sultan ordered him to wait a while before opening it. He then signed to Labakan to come up to his table, and Labakan, stepping up, laid his hand also on the nut he had chosen. A basin of water drawn from the sacred well Zemzem in Mecca was then brought in. In this the sultan washed his hands, turned his face toward the east, threw himself upon his knees and prayed, O Allah, our protector, thou who for hundreds of years hast preserved our line pure and free from all shame, allow not a worthless impostor to sully the name of Abbasid. Oh, I pray thee, be near my true son, with thy mighty aid in this hour of trial. The sultan arose and ascended his throne again. The most intense interest fell upon all the assembly. Then said the sultan, Open the walnuts. And with that both nuts, which before had resisted all his force, now flew open. In the nut that Omar had chosen, there lay on a tiny silk cushion a wee golden crown and sceptre in labakan's nut was a large needle and a twist of thread the sultan ordered them both to bring their open nuts before him he took the tiny crown from out the nut and oh what a wonder now was seen as the sultan laid the crown in the palm of his hand it became larger and larger until it had reached the size of his own crown he placed the magic crown upon the head of his true son Omar, who knelt before him. He kissed him on the brow and bade him sit at his right hand. Then, turning to Labakan, he said, It is an old saying, the shoemaker stays by his last. And in this instance we see it verified, for it seems that you also shall stick by your needle. You have not, indeed, deserved my mercy. But clemency has been prayed for this day, on behalf of the one who should be found guilty of this deceit. Therefore I give you your worthless life, but beware that you never come again into my kingdom. Ashamed and utterly undone as he was, the poor tailor apprentice was unable to reply. He threw himself on his knees before the prince, and the tears forced themselves in his eyes, as he said, can you forgive me, O Prince? True to his friend, generous to his enemy, the descendant of Abbasid must ever be, answered the Prince, signing to Labakan to arise. Go in peace. O oh, thou noble son, exclaimed the old Sultan with joy, as he embraced his son Omar. 
then all the emirs bashas and the whole assembly rose from their seats and shouted long live the sultan's son omar the true in the midst of the general jubilee labakan slunk out of the palace the nut was still in his hand he went to the stables saddled his horse Merva, and rode out of the gate toward alexandria his short court life was over now and seemed but as a dream only the fine gold nut richly set with pearls and diamonds proved to him that he had not been dreaming when at last he had again reached alexandria he rode up to the house of his old master dismounted fastened his horse to the doorpost and entered the workshop the master who did not immediately recognize him made him a low bow and asked how he could serve him but looking more closely at his guest he recognized his old apprentice labakan at once he called loudly to his assistants and apprentices here is labakan they all with one accord rushed upon their old comrade who had not expected such a reception in a rage they beat him with their flat irons and yardsticks they pricked him with their needles they nipped him with their shears until exhausted poor Labakan fell down on a heap of old clothes. As he lay there panting for breath, his master began to reproach him for the stolen robe. In vain, Labakan assured him that he had only come there that he might restore everything he had taken. In vain, he offered the valuable gold nut as a compensation for what he had stolen. The master and apprentices fell upon him again, beat him cruelly, and thrust him out of the door. Bruised and cut, he mounted his horse Merva, and rode to the nearest inn. There he laid his bruised and weary head upon a pillow, and thought over the hardships of this world, the fickleness of luck, and the uncertainty of riches. He fell asleep, with the firm determination to renounce all claim to greatness, and settle down as an honest and hard-working man. The next day he was still unshaken in his resolution. The severe treatment of his master and the apprentices seemed to have pommeled all nobility out of him. At a very high price he sold the gold nut to a jeweller. With the money he bought a house and fitted up one of the rooms as a workshop. When he had put everything in order and hung out over the door his sign, Labakan, tailor, he sat down and began with the needle and thread which he had found in his nut to mend his clothes which had been so slit and torn by his master's cruel treatment. A customer called him away from his work for a few minutes. When he would have commenced his work again, what wondrous sight met his eyes! The needle began sewing of itself, without being guided by anyone. It made such fine, even stitches as Labakan could not have made in his most careful work. This magic gift of the fairy was, indeed, a useful one to Labakan, and of the greatest value. But so, too, was the little piece of thread a good gift, for it never gave out, no matter how fast the needle flew. Labakan's splendid work brought him many customers. He soon became the most celebrated tailor far and wide. He cut the clothes and with the magic needle started the stitching in them. But after that the needle worked rapidly on without guidance until the garment was completed. Master Labakan had soon the custom of the whole city. 
his work was beautifully fine and extraordinarily cheap but the one thing which puzzled his customers was that he worked without assistance and always with his workroom door fastened thus was fulfilled the inscription on the nut that he had chosen good luck and riches recognizing his proper sphere of duty he had accepted it without grumbling and now in the fullest measure good luck and riches were strewn in the path of the good tailor and when he heard from the mouths of all of the honour and renown of the young prince omar how he was a pattern to the brave beloved by all his people and a terror to his enemies then he compared the brilliant course of this young prince with his own and said within himself it is better for me to have remained a tailor for to display such truth and honour as does omar and to win such esteem and renown as does he require other talents than those which i possess so labakan lived contentedly in a sphere esteemed by all his fellow-citizens and if the needle had not lost its power he is still sewing with the never-ending thread of the good fairy Adelzai. At sundown, the caravan recommenced its journey. They soon reached Birkat al-Had, or the Pilgrim's Well, a point only three hours' journey from Cairo. The caravan was already expected, and the merchants soon had the pleasure of seeing their friends coming out from Cairo to meet them. They entered the town through the gate Beb al it was considered a lucky omen for anyone coming from Mecca to enter Cairo through this gate, for the reason that the Prophet had himself passed through it when entering that city. When they had reached the marketplace, the three Turkish merchants parted from the stranger, Selim Baruch, and the Greek merchant, Zalukos, went home with their friends. Zalukos then escorted Selim to a caravansary and invited him to dine with him selim accepted the invitation and promised to return as soon as he had changed his garments zalukos had made all necessary preparations for entertaining his guest handsomely he had really learned to love this stranger during their journey together when the table had been set in the best order and with a most tempting display of food and wines zalukos took his seat and awaited the return of his guest after a short space, he heard heavy footsteps coming through the passage and directed toward his apartment. On hearing the steps, the Greek arose in order that he might meet his friend with all cordiality and welcome him to the dinner. But he started back terrified, for as the door opened, lo, that awful man of the red mantle, the unknown, stood before him. Zalukos gave another glance at him, there was no mistake here was the same tall commanding figure the mask from beneath which flashed out the black eyes the red mantle embroidered with gold all were too well remembered by him and too closely connected with the most awful hour of his life conflicting emotions struggled in Zalukas's breast as an unpleasant remembrance he had long since been reconciled to the fearful picture and had forgiven him who was the author of all his misfortunes and yet this sight tore open afresh all the old wounds it recalled all the old anguish all those hours of torture the terror of death the utter despair which had come over him when his blood had been spilt on that foreign soil 
the recollection of all these horrors passed through his mind in a moment what want you here o awful man exclaimed the greek as the apparition stood motionless on the threshold depart i implore you go hence at once lest i be tempted to curse you Zaleukos, said a voice now grown familiar even beneath the mask do you thus receive your invited guest the speaker pulled off his mask he threw back the mantle he was selim baruch the stranger of the caravan but Zaleukos could not at once feel at ease he felt himself really afraid of his friend for in him he had seen only too plainly the mysterious man of the ponte vecchio his customary hospitality to guests prevailed however and he motioned silently to the stranger to sit down with him to the meal i can well guess your thoughts said selim at last breaking the silence your eyes seem to question me i would not have revealed myself and your eyes should never have seen my face again but it is only due to you that i should give you some explanation of my seeming cruelty i therefore venture to thus appear before you lest you should curse me however i have now removed my disguise you said to me once during our journey the faith of my fathers bids me love him for we are christians moreover he is more unhappy than i most truly you judge aright my friend believe me and hear me patiently while i make my own excuse End of section 8. Recording by phone.